Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to keep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. you miss us we um we are back welcome to the movie show with joel and ryan uh i well first of all well, i am joel i'm ryan and of course we have uh, a special guest if you are watching the video feed you already see him but uh let's give a big warm welcome to dr maz mary <laughs> and you can hear his wife talking in the background on the video ah, i think she's got upstairs hello again thank you for having me on your show again delightful we are thrilled that you are here. This show, um, and to the degree that it can be, it's our gift to you. <laughs> it's not the perfect gift. It's not the perfect gift, we admit. Yeah. It's the gift that we had to give, though. And we're going to try and give it our all. We'll see how it goes. Much appreciated. Indeed. Well, uh, dear listeners, thank you for uh, for putting up with our little absence. Uh, I have had some health issues, and... Um, they are uh, hopefully going to be remedied here. Uh, they are slowly getting remedied as we speak. And um, after a little bit of surgery, I should be uh, back up and, and rolling pretty good. But uh, it did unfortunately mean that we had a lot of uh, unscheduled uh, episode absences. That's a really horrible sentence. Um, good thing I don't have like a call. Oh, yeah. Weeks without shows is what you yeah, mean. Yeah, weeks without shows. Yeah, I just meant we... I, yeah, I could have just said there were several weeks that we couldn't have a show because I was stuck in bed and couldn't uh, could barely move. Um, I could have said that, but instead I decided to, uh, I guess, make Yoda's syntax seem uh, exceptional. Um, I think but, I uh, considered doing a show on my own without you, but in the radio era, that worked, you know, okay, actually, mm -hmm. better than I might have even imagined. It turned out all right. Yeah, in the video the era. Yeah. You have yeah. to be here. It's just something about it. It wouldn't be right at all. It'd be really weird. And, dude, you're the greatest host ever. I can't tell you how thrilled <laughs> it is to be interacting with you in this way and to not imagine you like falling down the stairs and yeah, just it was writhing yeah. around on the couch in agony. Like I imagine the worst, worst. It, it was bad. It was bad. I did get to ride for the very first time in an ambulance. That was the first oh. I, I did. I did ride. Fun. In an for the very first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was there was a point when the drugs just started to kick in that the uh, the EMTs had given me, uh, where I I I was kind of like, hey, this is my first time in an ambulance. This is kind of woo. <laughs> and the guy. We like, all remember yeah. our first time. That's yep. neat. So, um, but yeah, so we're, we're getting that sorted away, uh, but we are so happy to be back and we are so happy to have Maz, uh, with us again. Um, today we are talking, this was a show that has been in the works for a while. 
Um, and it originated because Maz asked, he was like, wouldn't it be awesome to talk about some of the disaster films of the 70s? Oh, there were such so many good ones. Hindenburg and Earthquake and Towering Inferno. And we, and we, and, um, we had to break it to him that we already yeah. did that disaster yeah, movies of the so 70s. We and he was like, oh, well, I'd be willing to talk about modern disaster movies. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what, yeah, bro? Well, yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we did that too. It was it was horrible. I can't tell you how disappointing it was to have somebody sitting across from us who's into the same weird crap as us going, I want to do this and I want to do that. And we're all like, nope. And uh, right. no to that. And plan C is not going to work either. Yep. But in the back of my head, and we mentioned a few of these as we went along back in our 70s episode. You want to tell everybody when that was? Yeah, so uh, we did those episodes with uh, with a friend of the show, Michael, uh, Michael Klug. Uh, that was back in season three. Episode 23, 24, and 25. And then you can stay for the bonus episode 26, where we interview J.O. Sanders. Star of many very cool modern uh, uh, disaster films. In depth about the day after tomorrow. As a matter of fact, the great J.O. Sanders straddles two, not one, but two disaster eras that are very distinct from one another. And and he does it with a plum. So, um, but and that was at the that was in the beginning of the YouTube era of this show yeah, of so the video era of this show. The hell we were so doing, but thank you, pandemic. Woo. Um, it's the only way to get a movie star to come on our show. That's for sure. Yeah, it's true. Lock them up in their house with no interaction with other people, and they will they'll just go be like, "What podcasts are going on out there?" Matter of fact, they mm-hmm. sort of ruined everything for all of us normal people who do podcasts. But that's a different right. rant entirely. Um, <laughs> uh right it so was the I, the idea you... was hey there's it's okay like i thought oh we can't do the count we already did it we can't do like the next five that'd be stupid and then i the more i thought about it though let's just let's let's wrap them all up let's wrap our arms the three of us around all the 70s disaster movies that we didn't talk of even a couple that almost don't qualify but that just here's our chance to talk about some stuff and you were kind enough to agree to that sort of, what do you call it, the runner-up prize. And, and this is going to be a fun show because these are fun, these, goofy movies. Uh, and yeah. as bad as a lot of them are, there's a couple genuinely good ones in here. But that, as bad as most of them are, there there's things to love about them. It's going to be fun to talk about them and try and pick out the things that are best about them. Like I'm looking forward to doing that. To advocating a little bit to some little lost lambs of the 70s disaster films. But let's give Dr. Mary a chance uh, before we get into the uh, the the discussion proper of uh, of these um, other movies. Let's uh, let's get his oh, Maz, let's okay. get your reaction to some of these to the classics. What were our top our top five All right. disaster <laughs> movies of the 70s? We'll give you, you know, we'll, we'll give you we'll like a mini a, countdown style. Yeah, mini count here. We'll just go. Uh, uh, let's see. I can't. Where's mother? Where's mother? Oh no! Did I get? Did I lose mother? Well, you really had no reason to break her out this week. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it'd be. Ten seconds. But then we'll just go boom explosion because it's only a partial countdown. It's not uh, just the explosion of the Nostromo, though. It's also the launch of a rocket in Houston, Texas, so combined. 
Oh, um, all right. So, Maz, uh, our number five uh, disaster film of the 70s was Airport. And, of course, there's uh, Airport 77. Which we mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Airport. Yeah. And Airport Concord. Airport 75, Airport 77, and Airport 79. Concord. The Concord. And, of course, Airport itself wasn't a disaster movie at all, which we mentioned at the time. It's really an ensemble drama. The It has a little sort of bomb threat in it that's kind of disastery, but mostly it's just bad weather and no planes crash and spoiler alert for airport. But I mean, it's, it's, it's about these people and their lives and the, it's a big workplace drama. Yeah. Um, I mean, the subsequent, the, right. The subsequent airport movies, all disaster movies though, for sure. Yeah. I mean, air, airport has it all. It's got, um, it's got a jaded, um, airport manager it's got uh, a pilot near retiring it's got a pilot who's got the chief stewardess pregnant of course she's the one that gets injured it's got bad weather it's got great lines you know you take the wings of a 707 and what you basically got a tank i think i don't actually think that's <laughs> true but there you go <laughs> good old wholesome if you're afraid of flying and you don't like weather, here's a great movie for you to watch. But it's a better it's a better movie than it deserves to be five on the it's list with some of these you know, things. Got, but the, as a series looks, of diminishing returns, right? We just sort of stuck this one at the end. Did you see the amount of Oscars that thing got nominated for? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Does, yeah. Airport's a legit good film. It is. It's just not a disaster film. So if we, you, you want to, we didn't want to send people to it thinking they were gonna, you know. Yeah. Get but the goods, and it won. I mean, it won. It won the Oscar uh, for Helen Hayes. Yeah, what a great for actor she turned out. Supporting to be. role, yeah. But I can't see. I can't think of that film. Uh, two things always spring to mind when Airport comes on. I I think of all the bad sequels. Yep. And then I can't. And then I just start quoting Airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right, because <laughs> right. that's Which it's really. Yeah. That's really the more famous, you know, the disaster send up it, it's of the airport movies. Sure. So what was next on the list? We got to book through these. All right. So uh, next up is the Hindenburg. Oh, Hindenburg. Yes. You know, that's uh, no, nothing sort of says uh, Nazi propaganda <clears throat> movie than the Hindenburg. Real life story. Very finely acted, actually. Um we agree. We're big fans of Hindenburg here. Gentlemen. And I like the end, the ending where they actually, um, I don't know if the, the Hermes fade into, they kind of go into, morph into the actual 1937 footage of the actual Hindenburg catching yep. fire. Yep. And sort of mix that with the stuff that they shot. And, um, you know, Hindenburg had a bad rep and was a, considered a very disappointing movie because because of that ending. And I think that ending gets better with each passing year. Well, I think it's I just agree. a really neat way to do it. But again, they were selling the Hindenburg disaster and you didn't get a big Titanic third act of the Hindenburg. Uh, now, how could you have? So it's a lot of walking and talking on a blimp and, yeah, but at least they never made Beyond the Hindenburg or anything like that. That's true. That's true. They, well, I, said, I was hoping they, really they would didn't. have done a I was hoping they would have done a sequel uh with that dog. That's oh, that would have been good. Oh yes. They uh yeah, he could have teamed up with some cops and solved crimes in Chicago or something. <laughs> yep. Well don't you what is he doing? Don't you know he's the Hindenburg dog? 
The yeah. Hindenburg and then like, dog. The Hindenburg dog. I think, I think and the Hindenburg dog. Anyway, uh, and then we have the towering inferno. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We had earthquake. Earthquake, earthquake yeah. was yeah. Earthquake. I I I got some vague memories of earthquake. I think it kind of bleeds in. It to me, it kind of it's lost in between a lot of bad, almost made for TV seventies movies about earthquakes and yeah, yep. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. definitely the template for the made-to-TV one. It was expanded into a TV miniseries. It was one, not the first, but one of the first movies to, yeah. to you know, where they cobbled up all the cut footage and subplots that didn't make it and put it all back in so they could share it, share it on two nights. And uh, apparently, TV movies were sold to the networks by the minute back in those days. So if you yeah, did I that. See that. That makes sense. The amount. If, if you did that, you got more money for the for the rights to show it, which is I think yes. is funny. So growing up in England in the seventies, um, when the BBC tried to expand, that's what they were buying. They were buying cheap American made-for-TV movies, and at the time, we were all very excited to see Earthquake. Yeah, well, it, Earthquake has its charms, but we unfortunately we can't we can't go into them here. But well, and then of course the big two. There's some consternation as to what order these should be in but our guest at the time felt very strongly what number one should be so we deferred to his judgment they were in order two to one uh number two was the towering inferno towering inferno a really interesting movie with absolutely everyone in it yeah yeah anyone who's anyone it's amazing you get name five big stars at the minute great let's get them in a movie stick them in an elevator and set fire to it <laughs> Sounds fun to me for mm-hmm. sure. I actually think uh Towering Inferno is really, really accomplished. I think John Gillerman, while not famous for anything much more than that, and King Kong 76 and some yeah. films of that type, was a really, really smart director. And that's as I think Ronald Neem, we were about to talk about, was awesome too. But I think Gillerman knew where to put the camera, and I think uh I think Irwin Allen really did him dirty by standing up and taking credit for everything in that movie, even contractually allowing himself to take credit for quote, directing the action scenes, which, which as we came to be proven, he couldn't, he couldn't direct anywhere near as Gillerman clearly did. So no, it's a good fit. It's a very nicely put together. It's a, it's a well-filmed film. Yes, yeah, it's and it's. I consider it the apex of the seventies disaster films. It was all downhill after that one. They didn't get bigger or more star-studded or with bigger budgets or anything after that. It's got what's it called? Um, it's got a realistic plot. It does. It's based on not one but two different novels: the Glass Inferno and the Tower of something. Tower of bad news or that's not right the tower of death all right and the number one on that original list joel uh the poseidon adventure Uh, here is a classic film this goes back to some 50s films this film is one of those ones where the original is way better and always will be better than the remake sure yeah Um, it's great i mean how that i don't know if it's the actors in it i don't know if it's you know how great they were. Let's get these great actors, stick them in a disaster movie, make a film set that's upside down and on fire and wet. 
all at the same time. Well, let's get one up-and-coming filmmaker and basically a bunch of people who aren't opening movies anymore, but are big names, and let's yeah. make the most we can out of an ensemble of that type. And I think I mean, Michael, in the show, when we talked about it, really nailed something about it that I didn't really think about it. But it, it's very linear, one room to the next, you never go back. It's it, There's this very yeah. clean, dramatic... Thing that happens in it that's super satisfying to watch, and it 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 doesn't pull any punches with with kind of who makes it and who doesn't, and it, it, it it's kind of an amazing film in that way. It is. I mean, if you time. look at it, I didn't even I didn't even notice that. I don't know if there was a, supposed to be a subtle drug joke. It's set New Year's Eve, and one of the main character is um, a minister who's lost his faith. You got a policeman. Who kept arresting a prostitute so he could marry her? <laughs> I like that. And I wouldn't say Hackman lost his faith so much as his faith is is grounded in reality in a way that the other yeah. priests aren't really. What does he say? God loves triers. You know. Yeah, and it's he's still it's preaching just, the word. It's just a great film, you know. Even when you get these these few survivors. And they managed to, you know, they spend an hour climbing up the inside of the Christmas tree. That scene yeah. went on for a bit. And you're exhausted yeah. by the end of it, which is sort of what these films are going for. You're you're exhilarated, but you're also just kind of, wow. I mean, that was the whole experience. It puts you up on the screen. Yeah, and they're still saying the snarty things to each other. Like one of them won't go up the ladder before the, 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 the larger one in case they fell on them. You know. Yeah, but it's attrition. Once they suffer one loss too many, you know when that moment yeah. is, where all their souls sort of break, and it takes all of them to get up and do the next thing, and I always thought that was pretty cool in that movie, yeah. too. Whereas Towering, which I kind of prefer, is episodic and scattered all about throughout the building and these little groupings and stuff. It's a little different. This That group that we follow all the way through, that's such a clean narrative. Mm. But... I don't remember. Does I remember Airplane having the very wonderful, and they should bring it back in all movies. The yeah. split screen thing. Yeah, yeah. Did the Airplane did that? Did the Towering Inferno did do that? I can't quite remember. Nope. Uh, it could have, but it didn't. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I don't think any of those original ones did. But I don't know. Well, we know that there's going to be a morning after. That's right. But there will not be any Richard Roundtree Evil Knievels. Oh, yeah. And I know that's, that's disappointing, but we got to move on with the show at hand, which is. Yes. All right. Here we go. Here's it. We're, we're this one. We're, we're going to we're calling this one 70s disaster movies. The Leftovers. Started off with the new Cinerama that hurls you into the incredible day that shook the earth to its core. Krakatoa, east of Java. And the first thing, anytime you're talking about Krakatoa, east of Java, starring Maximilian Schell and Brian Keith, amongst others, is you just have to say it. Krakatoa is west of Java. Yes. 
<laughs> in fact, in the European version of Trivial Pursuit, that is one of the entertainment questions. Is it truly? It is truly that. Well, you know, at this point, I mean, all you kids out there who listen to our show, you may not have even heard of Krakatoa East of Java. Um, but it is, it did, that title became a sort of cliche and it became, it kind of comes up in Krakatoa lore and Krakatoa conversations. It's just completely like as a, like literally 180 degrees incorrect geographically, which is sort of odd because that is the name. And it really was a marketing bean counter decision to leave it that way when some guy in some room said, Hey, you guys, it appears that, uh, Krakatoa is west of Java. And they're like, well, sorry, we made the lunch boxes already. So, you, just... well, you know, somebody was like, well, it depends on which uh, which way you're looking at it. I mean, yeah, technically, it's uh, west of Java if you go the long way. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> anyway, Krakatoa East Java, big Cinerama movie with that just it is. It, I, I'm a big fan of the big Cinerama movies, and this movie's just not a big movie. It does sort of deliver little things that you want. Maz, before I did a rewatch, I've seen this movie three times or so. I just watched it a fourth time. Reminded me when we were sitting down to have dinner together that it's a musical. <laughs> yeah, there's just out of the freaking blue. They just and there's no. At least in a film we're going to mention tonight, there is a musical number in another film, but yeah, at yeah. least there were people with musical instruments in the movie. Right, right, right. This is <laughs> this, a musical where the it just, makes no sense that it's a musical for just, just like... singing. Yeah, for just two songs. It's weird. Um, and the whole thing is kind of weird, but... Uh, do we have a little plot synopsis, Joel? Help me out. And then we'll uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, just real, real quick. It's uh, in 1883. Ship Captain Hansen plans a shipwreck salvage mission in the Dutch East Indies to retrieve a cargo of pearls, but an unexpected volcano eruption and a state-ordered transport of convicts upsets his plans. Yes, and of course they've got um, infeasibly good-looking women who are trained divers. Mm to go down in the shallows to look for pearls. And then they've got this massive, in, because it's the 18th century industrial revolution and be damned, they've got this mechanical monster that can go deep yep. and look for the shipwreck. Yep. And they have a, a hot, hot air, air balloon. Does it have like a glass bottom on it or something or what in their basket? Or how do they, what do they do from the, I'm, I'm mixing that up with the other volcano movie that bookends this particular episode. Um, but I like those hot air balloon sequences. But the Krakatoa is fun. Maximilian Shell is great. He's such a great because he's such a big performer, and yet he's such he's a serious cat, and he doesn't f around on screen. That's what I love most about yeah. him. He really treats the thing with panache, and he's a he's just a good peg for us to land on when the melodrama and some of the science. And nonsense has happened around him. I really like the effect sequences in this film were done by Eugene Lurie, who worked on a couple of Harryhausen films that we'll talk about, uh, or at least one Harryhausen film that we'll talk about, and a, a Willis O'Brien movie that we'll talk about at some point. Um, but he he worked with creatures and stop motion and stuff, and his miniature sets. Although you can, and the the nicer version of Krakatoa you watch, the more you can really tell how miniatures they are. If 
but it's still really like a pretty painting. It's like really artfully done and kind of beautiful. The hot air balloon trip during the um, in the volcano really is neat. The aerials are nice, but Krakatoa. I'm a big. I'm like a Krakatoa fan. I guess I'm not glad it happened or anything, but I'm just what. What Krakatoa did to our whole planet. Oh, yeah, Krakatoa. Get him, Krakatoa. Is <laughs> what it did to the whole planet and how it affected everywhere. Everyone who lived on Earth for years yeah. is stunning. It really is. It's it's not the first event like this that happened since people were writing things down or keeping track of things. But it was the first really, really, it was the first major one where we were able to track all these, you know, the mileage and, you know, the, the, like you said, industrial revolution, that a lot of the ways we measure and think about things and think about things scientifically were all applied to this disaster. And that yeah. that's allowed people to keep studying it in, in actual meaningful ways as time goes on. And what it delivers just isn't enough. It's just not Krakatoa. And in a way, it's the movie smart. It starts out with a little eruption and then it does the bigger one once we're well away from it to where you can at least kind of imagine people might have survived. But if you were close enough to hear that thing go off and it was the loudest sound that has ever happened on the planet earth that we know of by far, it was heard on several different continents when yeah. it happened. So you just have to think about what that is, the scale of that. And this movie just doesn't live up to that. And it's loaded with this, the silly striptease song, and it just got all this stupid silliness in it. I don't know, Maz. What do you think? It doesn't actually hold up as a movie. It, you know, it was made. What was it made? Sixty-eight or something like that. Yeah, that when it was Six, made, sixty-five, maybe. Six, no, sixty-eight. Sixty-eight. 68. Okay, so same it's... year. Ugh, same year as two thousand one. Like same year as the turning of the tide, essentially in terms of event films. It's a, it was a bad time for it to come out. I think, you know, to make it interesting, I had the, I got the impression they tried to shove too much into this. There was too much story. Yeah. You know, they had, all right, we've got convicts on the on the, on the the boat. Of course, the captain knows one of them. So he says, hey, if I, you know, unchain you, will you cause me any trouble? No, I'm good. And, of course, the captain leaves the ship and the convicts take over. And, you know. Yeah, yeah you got all that. It has nothing to do with Krakatoa. But, you know. yeah, so it's just kind of like, all right, we've... Uh, you got the kids, the orphanage at the mission, and nuns. The... got some nuns in there too. Yeah, always nuns are good to have for sure. And then you got this weird bit where the captain's saying we're gonna so we're gonna sail through the tsunami, which actually does make a lot of sense. Get to deep water, you're gonna lessen the impact. And then people going, I want to go on shore. Okay, bye. <laughs> 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 what? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't really have known. I mean, the, the the it is historical fact that the ship that did survive the thing did so by turning directly into the wave. And it's yeah. sort of credited a little bit, although it's probably not the first time a navigator navigated a storm by turning into the waves. But it it's the first time where a, a tsunami was thought to have been conquered that way. And that's a thing that we all kind of know. Turn into the wave, you know, and our our subsequent disaster movies demonstrate that time and time again, but it just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't live up. It's, it just doesn't live up to the hype and it's not even very good before it does. It's just sort of cheesy. What, where it's really disappointing is it's a Cinerama. It's not a true like three 
panel Cinerama adventure, but it's a big widescreen adventure where they just don't show you enough cool widescreen yeah. sights and stuff. It's a well-composed movie and well-shot. Bernard Kowalski is shooting it, and he's not responsible for any of the effects. It's a whole different movie team doing those. So you got these two people working on this stuff, and that shows up in the film, but yeah, I'm with you. It's 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 only for like deep dive widescreen enthusiasts from that era who like those epic movies no matter how dumb they are or yeah. if you have to see any movie where a volcano erupts this is the most there aren't many Krakatoa movies that I'm aware of there's a couple of TV ones but this is certainly the biggest Hollywood ever tried anyway to date so mm -hmm. we'll see if we get yeah. another one well let me let me let me uh let, let's cap this off I'll ask you a quiz because the the poster for this movie uh, really, I mean, it really sets you up and kind of, you know, tell, tells you what you're going to experience. And let's I'll, I'll pose it to you guys. Do you feel like you uh, you experience this the day the mighty volcano Krakatoa erupts and you drop into its fiery mouth? Do you, do you feel like you dropped into its fiery mouth? No, no. OK, how about and you are engulfed by the terrifying tidal wave? Yeah, we'll get they get you halfway there at least. Yeah, yeah, you know that that, okay. that one's better. Maybe not quite engulfed, but maybe a a, a nice hug. Yeah, of the title. It's kind of neat, and it's almost touching. You know, they're hiding out down in the hull of this ship, and you really experience a lot of it. This is a bit of a cop out from a spectacle standpoint, but emotionally, it really works. You got all the orphans down there, and the nuns, and all the women and children basically in the whole of this thing while the worst of it is happening and they're huddled together and having a sing along and just trying to get through it. And it, it's actually, it's somewhat affecting. It's, it's not executed perfectly, but it's a neat idea that I appreciate. Yeah. I, got, yeah, I appreciate okay. that. Too. And you desperately search for the lost children. Did you feel like you were searching for lost they children? They pretty much just bumped into the children actually by luck. Okay. So no, there was, father, there was a good. There was a father and son moment in the film. Though, yeah, when the, when that's true. The son was talking to his dad. He goes, "Son, you might die if you stay here. This this ship will turn into a, a matchstick." And his son says, "Yes, but matchsticks float." That's nice. That's not bad. I like that. Uh, and you oh, yeah. outrun a raging river of molten lava. No, we didn't see a lot of rivers yeah. of lava. You, again, if you were close enough for the lava, I mean, you were incinerated instantly when it went off. So it's just, it's not a thing that the movie can even do. It's not that kind of volcano movie. And in yeah. a way, it's nice that it, that it handles it as real, that at least gives some thought to how you, a, a group of people could survive the thing. But it, it's bad because it delivers on none of the volcano cliches that you would expect a film like right. that too. So, and it's, and it's right there and it provides the metrics by which this movie should be judged right there in this poster. And unfortunately it doesn't, uh, the data just doesn't, um, doesn't back it up. It, it changed the sky and the sunsets for years everywhere in England Every yeah. place in the world, it 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 just fundamentally changed the world. It was such a huge catastrophic catastrophic event, and this movie uses it as fodder to sell you just a sort of conventional volcano at sea film, and it just it's. But I don't know. I have a soft spot in my heart for it. But we got to move on. What's next? All right. 
Next up is and uh, hey, it predates yeah. it predates Poseidon Adventure, which is considered the birthplace of the, you know, so yeah. it gets a little credit for, you know, yeah, having a dry run at this sort of storytelling. It's kind of the first one. You go all the way back to, um, you know, Ernest showed second Marion C. Cooper in the Last Days of Pompeii, but it this is. This is the one. This it really follows the template very closely and, and get a lot of credit. And it doesn't get mentioned in this group of movies very often. So that's that I like too. Yeah. Um, all right. And well, in, in Joel, you'll love this. Oh. Bernard Kowalski. The only other movie we've ever talked about of his is, or in Europe, Snake. <laughs> Since we have oh a native European on the show, I'll give the European title too because it's it's almost even funnier than the stupid American title. <laughs> what are you gonna go see? I'm gonna go see Snake. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dirk, Dirk Benedict turns into a snake. What do you want? Yeah. What do you want? There you go. There you go. Um, all right. So you get uh, next up on the pre-disaster disaster movies. Uh, the Neptune Factor, 1973's The Neptune Factor. Woo, anyone see this but me? No. No. Look, I couldn't find it. I couldn't it's find not a, yeah. it's not I, well, it. It's not an easy one. It was a big 20th Century Fox movie. It was like a follow-up, and it is trying to be done in style of the Fantastic Voyage. Yeah. Um, I it's saw... got a pretty good cast. Walter Pigeon, Ernest yeah. Borgnine, Ben Gazzara, and Yvette Mimieux. That's a really neat, um, kind of like ensemble of people. And it, it's cool. It's got Borgnine and Yvette, you know, whatever, 10 years before, seven years before the black hole, which is a favorite. Mm -hmm. of so, um, but it's. The great thing about this movie is that if it were, it, 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 it's got all, it's a Canadian production, basically, and it's got the use of the entire Canadian Navy, Canadian airports, you get right up to the planes, all the boats, all the little mini subs, everything is so real and awesome and large in scale. And then, and it, what happens is this earthquake happens underwater and this little station with people in it, like falls over into a trench and gets lost. And they get this super mini sub that they borrow from the government to go down there and save them. And that's the plot of the movie. And we're going to talk about a better movie coming up here shortly that has a very similar plot to this. But where this one goes wrong is the Fantastic Voyage part of it. Well, the whole first... Two-thirds of the film is them figuring out how to get down there and then down there searching for the thing. And it looks great. It was directed by Daniel Petri in one of his first films. And and it just it ends up being these long sequences of them trying to quietly sneak through these giant fish that are just aquarium fish shot with cameras. <laughs> And there's and of course the poster the fish are like and they're monsters yeah. and they have big jaws and they're about to eat the sub but when you, when they really when they finally get to the moment with the big monster fish they're just really big fish who are just swimming along and instead of saying oh no oh no you're saying hey dear that fish kind of looks like our fish. <laughs> 
And it's like the last thing you should be doing at that moment. And the big fish don't even need to be there. Maybe the like the crab down there, there's this weird like exotic crab thing that they got. It's pretty creepy. If it had just been that thing and you'd have been like, oh, what's all the unknown magic of our world. But it just, those fish are the whole selling point of the thing and they ruin it. They make a movie that's photo real and takes all this underwater stuff super seriously and handles it great with some de decent... These are basically all B-movie actors to me. I know Borgnine won like an Oscar at one point, but, you know, he's been in so many kind of dumb things, especially in this era. But I, they're all doing a great job, and yet they're looking out there. And then even the movie realizes, like somewhere along the way, they're like, you know what? The fish aren't going to try and eat the little thing, so we, we have to do something else. So all they do is sneak through. That's the whole thing, and it goes on for an eternity. Sneak through. Oh, here's these fish. Here's some other fish. Here's a, another fish. And it's just like, come on. Oh, that crab is pretty wicked. Oh, the crab's not going to do anything. Okay. Oh, here's another fish. It's just, it, it, that fi there's a giant fish eye in the window. Can he see us? Or so does it, he really not? Get no, he left. Okay. All right. It's so a, exactly. It's a tale of two movies in that way. And I really like the one. And I really almost think the other one is hilarious. But unfortunately, it is not nearly bad enough to be like a bad, fun movie. It's a pretty good under. It's a really good underwater rescue movie that just stumbles into insanity because they felt they had to deliver some movie magic that they just were completely incapable of delivering ultimately, which is a shame because all the sub stuff, even when, again, you can tell they're miniatures and stuff, but it really well done. It's the, it's the, it's the blown up giant fish that don't work. I mean, they look cool too, but mm -hmm. they're very colorful. Aquarium lovers might like it. You'd be like, Ooh, that's, Fishistanus Epidurus or whatever, and you'd be like, oh, yeah. but uh, other people, mm -hmm. I don't know why you would like it, so, sorry. Sometimes I look in my aquarium and wish that I could float around and look at them. Is that your um, Mr. Limpet impression? Yeah, I, I guess. I don't know. That was just my uh, my aquarium enthusiast uh, voice. Uh, um, he's a character I'm working on. Uh, he's coming along great. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. All right. Next so, up, you know, proceed Neptune with caution Cracker. with that one. Is all I would yeah. say. Yep. Know what you're getting uh, into. Sorry to ruin it, but I really think I did y'all a favor. So next up is our little disasters that could. So these aren't the the big giant ones, but these are ones that uh that were trying. They they had they, they had a strong idea, maybe not the biggest budget, um, but they still wanted to give you. A little bit of that disaster feel um and the first uh first one up sophia loren richard harris martin sheen orenthal james simpson in 1976 burt lancaster never forget burt lancaster sorry burt lancaster uh in 1976's the cassandra crossing by greek director george pan Cosmatos. Cosmatos. Uh, most famous for directing Rambo, First Blood Part Two, and Cobra, and Leviathan, and Tombstone. So this is a guy that's gotten around, and yeah. his his take was always 
there's some debate about who actually directed Tombstone, but George was there and he did the press tour for it. So I'm going to go ahead and give him credit. And if Kurt Russell wants to do it, he can start his own effing podcast. Um, George is, was a, this big old personality. He made what he said was, you know, um, American style Hollywood adventures, but with a European flair is what he said. And his kid is a renowned horror director who we talked about one of his films on the show before too. His name is Panos Cosmatos. Um, so that's kind of neat. So the the story continues on, but I'm going to let, if you think you're ready, Maz, I'm going to let you do this setup for this one after Joel reads the... Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Cassandra Crossing is uh, just passengers on a European train have been exposed to a deadly disease. Nobody's going to let them off this train. So what happens next? Yeah. Well, this I love this film, actually. I, I saw this film when I was a, a wee lad and I watched it with my dad and I just really liked it. And every time it comes on, I may, I try and watch it. So it starts off with bioterrorists. See, that's not in the plot, too. You've got bioterrorists who break into right. the right. World Health Organization's secret lab in The Hague. And if it was that much of a secret, how did they know it was there? But enough <laughs> of that one. And then, of course, there's a shootout with Marine guards because U.S. Marines guard everything in Brussels. <laughs> and they shoot this big vat of toxin, and these two would-be terrorists inhale it. One of them is shot dead. The other one escapes and just happens to jump on the train that's going across Europe. Um, this is even before the European Union existed. So, you know, there were still border controls there. But anyway. And, of course, he's got this virus with him and he starts drinking the dog's water and the dog gets sick. And then he's walking up and down the train sweating in a, ni- a lovely white sweater. It's a lovely sweater. He's it is not really nice. I agree. It is. It's a lovely sweater. Um, and he starts coughing on everyone. Now, Richard Harris just has to be on this train, and he's with his ex-wife. They've been divorced and married three times. She was his publicist. Um, he just happens to be a doctor who was a mediocre doctor and then got lucky in a lab where he found out he could regenerate um, brain tissue. And when he's having dinner, he actually says in this movie, yes, I got lucky. I could, I could learn out how to regenerate brain tissue so we can help. And I apologize for saying this out loud, but in the film, he actually says, yes, we can now help retarded children. So he's he's because as we know, it's brain degeneration that causes Uh, all of those problems. He's he's a world expert on brain tissue. He just happens to be the only doctor on the train. And all of a sudden, he's a freaking virologist as well. (laughs) So. The great thing about this film, it's it's got everything. It's got um, uh, Burt Lancaster as an American doctor and colonel in the U.S. Army. So he works for the he's a he's an army officer that knows about you know risk assessments. So he's he's similar to Dustin Hoffman's character in Outbreak, basically. Yeah, yeah. and his his best idea with this train is to minimize risk because they don't know how contagious it is to send this train across a rail track that hasn't been used since the end of the Second World War. So it's 30 years old. No one's maintained it. And he spins this lie that the Polish government have fixed this train. On the train, of course, there's a survivor from a concentration camp who crossed the bridge 30 years ago who knows it was in bad shape back in the 40s. Mm -hmm. 
So they hatched this plot to take over the train from armed guards who were put there to protect them, but everyone's got machine pistols and they're in biohazard suits and they weld shutters across the doors and, you know, there's um, um, an internationally renowned um, mountaineer who's also a drug mule and a heroin addict <laughs> who has to then try and crawl out the train on the metal, sh metal shutters that they put up uh -huh. to try and take over the engine. And, you know, that's not going to end well because, they, mm. of course, they shoot him and he falls to his death. Spoiler alert so for to... uh, Cassandra Crossing. Yeah, but it's a it's an it's a very well done film. Apart from the end, it's almost like an M like Shyamalan movie. It's great to the last five minutes, and then he forgets how to end the film. Yeah. The half the people die, and the other half just wander off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, but it the whole thing is all tension and setup, and that's what's that is what's fun about it. And the yeah, disaster, yeah. which I don't know why we wouldn't ruin it at this point, but we're not going to ruin it. Mad, so don't tell okay. them what I happens. Say, but the disaster that it delivers, while it has nothing to do with the virus that the entire movie's about, I mean, it does, but it really doesn't. It, it's cleverly written in that way. It's too cleverly written, really. It's almost like they threw every idea all three writers had in a blender, and nobody could decide on any of them to get rid of. Just listening to your character descriptions, you, you get that impression from watching the movie. But... George knows how to direct a movie. I mean, he knows how to keep the energy going. He knows how to cut it. He knows how to make everything look great. The the break into that science lab. I mean, it just it's all you know. This is not a big widescreen adventure. It's shot spherically and simply. But he just you appreciate the architecture. I watched it on on Blu-ray, so I watched this movie. I've and I've seen it dozens of times when I was a kid too, because it's always been like like you. It's always been a sentimental favorite. Yeah. But I didn't. I never thought it was a good-looking movie. I thought it was just trashy and ugly and this sort of gray mess. And when I watched it in high definition, it's still a very film grainy, like European style film, which is why it doesn't translate. I think the videotapes and such as well as you'd yeah. like, but and it didn't get some like five-star res restoration either. It's the Cassandra Crossing. It's not some classic. But it looked great. It looks fantastic yeah. on Blu-ray. It's it's sold by Shout Factory on a double bill with a conspiracy theory, conspiracy movie uh, with Gene Hackman. I can't remember what it is. And and it so you can only buy it with another movie that you don't want. <laughs> I watched them both in one afternoon. Why not? It looks good. I mean, he really knew what he was doing in it and. And it's just it's just exciting. Even as absurd as it is, it's exciting and it's fun. It's fun to sit here and recount all the absurdities of the plot, because yeah. you really don't sit there and worry about it too much when it's happening. And George knows you're not gonna, and he doesn't care. He doesn't care that Marines and the Hague at the World Health Organization makes no damn sense. It's it that doesn't matter. That is not going to get in the way of thrills and spills. And it never once does. And it, you got to say he's got his priorities straight because it, there are thrills and there are absolutely spills, including one doozy. And what else could you want from a movie like this? It's yeah, really... And of course, um, the dog survives. They get the dog off the train and Joel. it lives. So they know it's good. Yeah, important. And it later dog. mates with the dog from Hindenburg, and they create Super Dog, which is where yeah. that comes. That's from. where we get Air Bud. Yeah, and uh, and and the subsequent uh, 
spawns of that. And another thing about this movie is I you notice it with adult eyes. There's a there's an American woman on that in this film that she's actually responsible for singing. There is a musical number in this film, but she's True. singing True. in a carriage surrounded by people with musical instruments. So it makes more sense. But somehow during this movie, she's always in her underwear. Thank God for that. Yeah, it's I forgot about that sequence. That is really a little odd. And she she also plays into the plot in really weird and unexpected ways. Yeah. But but looking- all of these films, even a cheap knockoff like this one, had to have that hippie song in it. And uh and yeah, it is one of those movies where you know, they do they don't get who is who's the woman the main woman in it? Well, uh, Sophia Loren. Sophia Loren. They don't get her naked, but uh, no. So you got to get Ann Turkle. Yeah, got to get Ann Turkle in her underwear. So this last, um, so the terrorist is what I find. Bursts open her door, and he did. The terrorist is sick and sweaty. So about a few, about sometime during the, the film, like um, uh, yeah, oh right? yeah, I remember that. Richard Harris knocks on the door and opens it, and he says, "Oh, excuse." She's of course in her underwear. He's, "Oh, excuse me, I was looking for a, um, looking for someone," and he's closing the door, and she goes. Great. First, first some sweaty nut job, and now you. And he opens the door, and again, what's sweaty nut job? So they're trying to see if Patient Zero is alive, and she's just reiterated the fact that Patient Zero is indeed on the train, and he's very much alive, and he's sweaty. Who's not going to walk in on me in my underwear? I don't yeah. think O.J. Simpson ever does, but the yeah. less said so about then they find him. They find him in the in the conductor's car. Or something. So, yeah. and Martin Sheen gives a really, really wacky, overacty performance in this too, which is pretty fun. The thing that troubled me about Martin Sheen's character in this movie was the bit part his wig made. <laughs> that, is, that was a terrifying haircut he had in that movie. Yeah, but it adds Very to the thing. Flowy. The the yeah. ridiculous, like I, well, I can't remember what it is. Some ridiculous, like baby blue suit that he's wearing and. He just looks like he stepped out of the worst kind of seventy early seventies like mail order catalog, like and it is really hilarious. Yeah, he does what he looks like. He's got Huggy Bear's suit on. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's fun. It's a fun. It's fun. Everybody's game, you know. Yeah. It's everybody's game, and Harris, you know, I. I, Richard Harris and me have our differences on a lot of things, but it, he, you know, he just, he, uh, like, he just, he does what I was just saying that Maximilian Schell does. He just, he really does a good job of holding down the fort amongst the absurdities. Somebody has to do that. And, and it, mm-hmm. it's, he manages that task in some impossibly ridiculous situations. And I just, yeah. you got to tip your yeah. hat to him. This Love movie it. was not a big hit, but it was a reasonable drive-through it's movie, a, and you know it. It's a good it, one. I like it. It is beloved. Film. I like it too. So it's it's an easy one to recommend if you want cheap disaster thrills. You just got to leave any sort of sense of logic at the door. You know, you got to keep your brain working. You can't turn your brain off. End quote. But because if you do that, you'll never follow anything that's happening, which it's hard enough to do when you're really concentrating. But but you you do have to leave a little logic at the door and just be like, mm-hmm. you know, ask if you're really complaining, ask yourself, well, why did they do that? Well, so this could happen. And then you're like, oh, well, okay, that was pretty cool. That's basically how I feel about it. All right. Well, there you go. So, um, all right. Next up, a Collision at Sea 
41 men trapped in a nuclear submarine on an ocean ledge. Fourteen hundred and fifty oh, yeah. feet beneath the sea, the most exciting rescue adventure ever filmed. Really, it is of course, it, yeah, it is of course, nineteen seventy eight's Gray Lady Down. Yes, yes, yes. Starring Charlton Heston, Heston Charlton Heston, Heston David Charlton. Carradine, Stacy Keach, Ned Beatty, Ned Beatty, Ronnie Cox, Ronnie Cox. What a bitch, man. I can't, forgot what old... Just You just want to smack him. What? No, he's, he redeems himself during this movie. He, that's, he does the right thing. Okay, you know he's gonna. I mean, he's either gonna do that or they're gonna have to put him down. But it... that He's just... He just... I mean, no offense to Ronnie Cox. He's a great actor, but he just... Dude. Well, I mean, oh, he's... If, you've, if you do follow this film through and pretend there's a sequel, he Charlton Heston would have to kill him. Yeah, because I mean, court he's that big he a whiny bastard. He's the XO of the sub. Yeah. Uh man. I, so, I don't know. It, partly it's bad writing. Partly it's it's Ronnie. And to his credit, there's only two ways to do this. You can fight against it with all your will, or you can just, oh, this guy's like that. Okay. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> which he chooses the latter, which is maybe the right choice. I don't know. It's there's a thing. There's a thing I've noticed. I watch a lot. Well, I watch a lot of war movies. I yeah. and I watch. I love navy movies. But and this is a super every, military navy movie, even though it's a rescue movie. It, it's yeah. it is that for sure. In every film I've watched involving a submarine, there's always some dude from Texas <laughs> who mentions the fact he went to sea because he's from Texas and he wanted to see the sea. And I always sit there and think. Why did you join the the submarine service if you wanted to, to see, see the sea? The yeah, sea. That's a good point. And Although it is brought up that if they know how submarines work, that if they hadn't been rolling along the surface like a boat, the accident might not have happened. Yeah. Um, it's really neat. They're trapped down there. The pressure starts getting to the sub. You know, things start out pretty good. It military, everything's set. Um, a few people sort of lose their minds under the pressure. Michael O'Keefe in his first role has a great, he's a radio guy and he has a great that's meltdown scene. Down. That's really fun. It was also Christopher Reeve's first role. He's not yeah. part of the sub crew. He's part of the rescue crew. Yeah. But he has some great scenes where he's in, he doesn't talk much. He's just a guy on the deck of the, you know, he's Lieutenant so-and-so on the deck of, uh, of the rescue ship they send out there, but Stacy Keach and you can just tell he's going to be a star. It's hard to explain, but and in a, in a way for the role, he shouldn't be doing half the stuff he's doing. Probably he's doing a lot, but it all is in the moment and it all sort of works. And so you kind of like, wow, you know, he's about to be Superman and you can kind of feel it. He's just <laughs> great. There's this great moment once they're all chewed out by Stacy Keach's character. And he gives this, he just he makes eye contact with this guy, and it, it, you can almost tell it's not planned, or it's or it didn't work right because the guy's not looking at him at the same time. They're supposed to do this take, and he waits for him, and then when he looks at him, he goes like that, <laughs> and it's huge, but it's awesome. He just you know you can just tell you can tell when because I couldn't get away with that, but he's a big star and he can mm -hmm. even if he, even if he's in a tiny little twenty fifth build role. Um, and David Carradine and Ned Beatty, the partners who drive the MIDI sub, the wise yeah. cracking guys who 
maybe Beatty, but that don't feel like they've ever spent a day in the Navy, actually. They're these rogue dudes that are super cool. And and the plan, right, to save the thing, and the thing that happens to the sub that makes it really hard to get to, like, it's all pretty feasibly thought out and very believable, I think. Characterizations are broad, but the disaster itself is really well done, and... I love the underwater bits. I love the mini subs. I love I love all that stuff. So. It's the tension of the fact that the the only thing keeping out the ocean is a watertight door to the engine room, yeah, which is completely flat, and then it starts to leak, and you just yeah. that that door takes on a supporting actor role. It really does. That door gets more close ups than the yeah. monkey in Anaconda too. <laughs> <laughs> water leaky pressure door reaction yeah. shots essentially all throughout the thing Good but yeah. you feel it you feel that yeah. that thing could blow any second we're all gone as so there's a there's a what joel calls the ticking time bomb going on there's uh, there's great miniature work they they keep it simple you know they don't show you too much of it but that's what's great about it you feel like you're down there and it's murky and it's dangerous and and the idea they come up with for rescuing or setting the thing right so that they can actually dock with it and unload these guys is to, you know, blow a bunch of rocks up, which next to, <laughs> next to the pressure. Mm, next to a submarine. It's, it's just... Especially it, when it's, it's below its crutch depth so, anyway. Exactly. So each sequence is filled with maximum amount of tension. And Heston, again, I don't love Heston. I'm always ripping on him, but I do like his movies. I own more yeah. than my fair share of Charlton Heston movies. And yeah, that's because he's attracted to a lot of the same things I like. And he's, he's of course, he's a great sub-captain in this. He's perfect. Yeah. And Keach, uh, too, who I could take or leave sometimes. I think he's great in it, too. So they all... They all do their thing. It's a little, little broadly acted, but you know, you know how the um the uh, the little mini sub is called the snark or the you know snark. Uh, what is it called? The snarks, snarks, not snarks revenge or something like that. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but they they call. It, I I only mention that because the the IMDb. Uh, I had to read from the poster because the IMDb synopsis, little plot synopsis says a navy captain uses his experimental snark to reach a <laughs> nuclear submarine stuck on an ocean ledge and it just makes it sound like he's he's going to he's going to rescue everyone with with witty bon mots which if that were the case heston would be the wrong guy for the role um <laughs> we're halfway good. through the show and we're only at four movies in so we got to cruise we'll keep right. going Next up, but great lady, that was great, right, Mass? Good one. Yes. Yeah. If you like naval movies or war movies, and you want to mix a little disaster with that in peacetime, this is your film. It's it's it. it's great. Well, it's very entertaining. It's not right. aces, ten stars, or anything, but really fun film and really well done. All right. Next up is we have some uh, low budget disaster disasters. Uh oh. We're gonna start off with Avalanche. Yeah, I should have. I did these in chronological order, but I should have flipped them because there's a there's a connection coming up here. But yeah, Avalanche. Uh, read the synopsis real quick, and I'll yeah, fill nine, in the... 1978's uh, Avalanche. Uh, we have Rock Hudson, Mia Farrow, Mia Farrow, Robert Forster. The va the vacationers at a winter wonderland struggle to survive after an avalanche of snow crashes into their ski resort. Their holiday then turns into a game 
of survival. Other than using the word survive twice, I really like that because I was thinking your holiday turns into a what? A nightmare, right? That's what these things always mm -hmm. turn into. So I'm I'm impressed they resisted that uh, marketing team for Avalanche back in 1978. Avalanche is a Roger Corman film. It was it 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 had paid for itself by selling its TV rights before they even started shooting it. <laughs> So it's totally, it's totally a Roger Corman special. I mean, in every way you can imagine. But Mia Farrow, I, I, Rock Hudson, okay, he's getting to the end. I, I can understand. You do what you got to do. And he he's great. I love Rock Hudson, and he brings all the gravitas you could possibly bring to a piece of crap movie like this, and I'm very, very impressed with that. Forrester... <laughs> As the guy out in the out in the mountain who's ringing the alarm bell and saying you're not you're cutting down these trees to give your little villas these perfect views and you're gonna have an avalanche fall on you he basically predicts exactly what happens in the film. Hudson's trying to Hudson sort of the mayor whatever mayor what's his the mayor of Jaws I can't remember Murray Hamilton's oh, character yeah. mayor. Oh boy. I am not the um, only one who forgot. Now I don't feel yeah, so bad. I can't I couldn't tell you. Well, we should know. And everyone out there listening to us, they all know and they're screaming it right uh, now. Mary, Mary, Mayor Vaughn, Mayor Vaughn. Yeah, Mayor Vaughn. Yeah, that's right. And 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 uh, Mayor Vaughn Jr. from the sequel. Um mm -hmm. okay, so he's that character but it isn't as the film is is clever and as much as it can be in that it's not a it's not he's not a He's not in denial. He just uh, he's just like, what are you raising the alarms for? We, you know, he's got to keep the resort going. Basically, I got a hotel to manage here, as Ayn Rand would have wrote it. Um, and it's fun. And Mia Farrow is his wife, who's having an affair with somebody else, and she's a you know Mia. She's a wisp of a person, and she sort of wisps her way through the movie. Um, the film is takes place, the, and this is kind of the harshness of it, because this film delivers the stunts and the disaster, and that's what's great about it. If it was just a slightly smarter script, or a script that didn't have the same cliched relationships, the affair, the denialist, the t you know the two avalanche experts, and we've got two different avalanche guys, and they can't agree on anything until after it happens. Um... <laughs> you know, so it's it's you just don't need all of that fake drama that has one of the worst like historic his sorry hysterical women performances that I've ever seen. I've never known a woman who did anything like this. This was a, a like almost a Hollywood thing. Women get hysterical. Joel, you did a whole play about it. You're hysterical. It's hysteria. Mm -hmm. Um. Stop being hysterical. Uh, jackass politicians still say this to women. That's they think well, if they're concerned about something, they're hysterical. Well, this this is a woman having a total breakdown. She is uh, the girlfriend of a like an awesome downhill ski superstar who's sleeping with everybody in the movie, but Mia Farrow and his girlfriend, and she just freaks out over that, over that, over that. That pisses me off. So I don't like some of the things in it. But when the snow comes down, and it comes down during a snowmobile race, during a figure skating tournament, there's all this sporty outdoor stuff, the skiing, all this stuff is happening on this, you know, like avalanche day or whatever they call it. I remember, yeah. you know, they got the bunting up and the little mm -hmm. the rainbow flag hanging things. 
and it's this big moment for this resort and it knocks over the bleachers and it it just wipes people out it just wipes them out and it is harsh to watch and in that way and by the time the thing is over you know rock hudson is shot from above turning and walking back and spoiler alert for avalanche into the wreckage of his hotel to what fate we don't even know even though he's he survived it's like his soul has been shattered by this event it's really hard it's it, there's things that are great about it, but the avalanche footage is great, and I'll come back to that later because I'll have reason to. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, Maz, what are you? What are your feelings on Avalanche? I didn't see it. To be yeah, honest, it's a, it's a tough one to find. You guys, it, there's a yeah, could... there's a home video releases out there, but it's nobody thinks you want to stream this crap, so it's hard. It's a hard one to find. I know. I found it is I, available. I, I... If we do, if you do want to watch it, it is available on something called Freevee, oh. which is apparently an Amazon product. Cool. I found a YouTube video entitled 10 Things to Know About Avalanche." <laughs> Man, so we should I, have done that video. Damn. I I have I I know I know the basic premise of the movie, but I haven't actually seen. I could not see that one because I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't even find go. it to rent on any of the many things I I can watch or rent movies on it wasn't there yeah so freebie maybe this is the time Apparently, if you've been thinking about yeah. checking out freebie and my little description of avalanche gets you excited hey check it out yeah, uh we got to move on go. to the next one quick the next one is uh a movie called city on fire 1979 starring uh barry newman susan clark and shelly winters and henry fonda and Henry Fonda, I who found himself in a couple of these disasters. Uh, uh, Leslie Nielsen, Ava Gardner. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. A pyromaniac, ex-employee of a city oil refinery, creates an explosion at the facility, which starts a chain reaction of fires that engulf the entire city. Shot city on fire. City on fire. Shot entirely on location in Montreal, Canada. That's not a place where they pull the camera back very much usually if you're shooting in montreal you're disguising it as something um barry newman as a doctor that has an uh uh medical doctor who has an in, just an integrity that cannot be broken even by leslie nielsen's bribes and threats uh who's the mayor of firetown <laughs> <laughs> and is really proud of this new hospital yep. that barry newman works in but that he thinks is garbage so there, there's the clash there. Henry Fonda is a is a very uh, you know guy with a with a lot of gravitas. Again, he brings Henry Fonda to the party, so that's welcome. But pretty much the preachiest under every circumstance chief of uh, fire department that you're ever going to find in one of these. He just nothing's good enough for this guy. Um, the fire is pretty good. The explosions are good. The escape sequences are well thought out and well choreographed. The way they try to get these people to run the fire gauntlet out of the hospital to save their lives at the end is really genuinely thrilling. But unfortunately, the stunt coordinator's specialty who worked on City on Fire was not fire. <laughs> it was falling. It was falls. And I don't know how... 10 maybe maybe i wouldn't if you told me it's 14 i wouldn't be surprised 
people fall from extremely high places to their death in this film and without like catching on fire or anything. And that's, it's sort of fire's difficult. It's not safe. Like I admire that they found other ways to make the thing exciting, but this dude only had one idea for what the other way should be. And the, the movie's sort of silly in that way. It's not as silly as avalanche, um, but it's not as fun as avalanche either. So it's, it's hard to pick which one's better. They make an excellent, like crappy disaster movie double feature because both of them have their good and badness. But uh, that's my city on fire close capsule review. I assu- I didn't mean to talk over everybody. I assume I'm the only one who saw that as well. You right? are the I I have. Have you seen it, Joe? Because I didn't see no, that. No, no, <laughs> no. So, you know any movie that's like Barry Newman's going to be our leading man. I mean, that's nothing against Barry. Yeah. He's great in it, but it's that's. No, I mean, at least Avalanche has Robert Forrester looking fairly young still. And, I mean, mm-hmm. that helps a lot. It really helps. It, Barry Newman, like, looking stern and saying, you better not call me up to that podium, you know. But the – and the whole <laughs> – it could happen in yep. any city. The madman, the madman who gets – who quits his job and starts the fire. I mean, that's that is actually sort of fun. This is my favorite little bit of trivia that I'll share with this. Yeah. Shell Oil Company, which owned a $600 million refinery that the production wanted to use as a location, granted permission as a gesture of raising awareness about safety issues, most (laughs) notably the dangers of locating oil refineries near cities. (laughs) Man, it's practically a how to set a fire that can't be put out at a, I mean, that part's real. This guy does all this stuff. You know, he's an engineer, so he knows what he's doing and he breaks the certain things that make it so that they won't be able to put it out in time. I mean, he diabolical what he does. He doesn't realize he's going to burn the whole town down, but Mm -hmm. he has his own everywhere he goes. And he interacts with a lot of our heroes in this. He has his own weird psycho set of concerns, but that's fun. A weird, creepy 70s psycho performance is always a fun thing. And that guy's, I don't even know who the actor is. He's pretty good. Pretty good job. I wouldn't even know where to point you on that. And this you just have to read the names and I might guess, or you might get to name 40 before we give up. So don't bother. James, James Franciscus as Jimbo. No, James Franciscus is because he's in a couple of these too. And I always love James Franciscus is thank you, Joel. Thank you for this. James Franciscus's agent must have like had as his specialty. I will get you the and credit every time and he shows up at the ends of these long ensemble movies with and james franciscus as lieutenant harrigan and james franciscus in this he's as jimbo which no one even ever says in the movie jimbo yep who's the woman in this the star probably Um, second build because she's barely in it but yep susan clark no next next one down she's the uh well there's shelly winters no. Ava Gardner. Ava Gardner. Uh, a- Ava Gardner Barr. plays a, a newscaster, and Jimbo is the guy in the control room who is, does the news. And they do a lot of plot from a, you know, just like a fireplace on the TV where she just kind of tells you that bad things are happening. And Jimbo, at the end, get compliments her like on her hair or something. It's the most insensitive thing at the end of this movie that you'll ever see. The movie's got one of those, you know, the... Uh, 
Red Cross has shown up and they got this camp and everything in this like uh, quarry and they do the big pan of all the suffering burnt people and then Jimbo <laughs> just like he's at the end of the credits baby and James Francis because it was his excellent smarminess gives that hey you did uh, you did with his sort of doing his Charlton Heston impression you did a great job baby you know and it's just like <laughs> what is that doing here I really feel like that crap was layered in later because it has nothing to do with anything else in the movie it's almost like this thing's got to be longer than an hour and 12 minutes people <laughs> ask for their money back maybe um, we can get some more guys falling off of stuff no 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 we got plenty of that let's get James Franciscus he earns That's his money Jimbo. every time, man. He yep. gives it his all. I like that guy. Um, all right, yeah, awesome. Right. There's another six bonus minutes on fucking City on Fire. Sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> all right. Okay, now we're gonna get to. So this is uh, this is we're getting into the waning years. Oh yeah, the disaster film. And these are really the highlight of the show. So yeah. You know. And and first up is 1979's uh, Sean Connery, Natalie Wood. Carl Malden, Brian Keith, Martin Landau, Trevor Howard, Henry Fonda is the president. And he's in that three movie, of them. Holy yep, smokes. that movie is Meteor. Henry Fonda's in more of these crappy films than, than James Franciscus is. How did that happen? Uh, but that's a good James Franciscus has one over on, on him, though. James Franciscus was in a at Planet of the Apes movie. Right, he was cast in the second Planet of the Apes movie yes, because he, he looks just like uh, oh, Heston, Heston, which yes. I was just saying. Yeah. And to, and it's it's amplified by the fact that he acts a lot like him as well. Um, he is, however, like two feet shorter than he is. So when they're standing next to each other at the end of the movie, it's it's ridiculous. It's like it's like astronaut and mini astronaut or something. It looks really stupid <laughs> at the end of Planet of the Apes. Sorry, yeah. beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah. The worst of the Planet um, of the Apes movies for my money. But we'll that's a different show we'll get, have Maz back for. Let's get talking about Meteor. Yes. Oh, um, Meteor. Yes. I love Meteor. I take Meteor over Deep Impact or Armageddon any day of the week. I like the uh, opening no. credits. They definitely promise a pretty big movie. They're one of my favorite opening credits of the era. Oh, yes. Biblical description of media is going on there. Mm -hmm. Well, and all the... Mm -hmm. For every name, it's like, whoa! Yeah. There's, what, there's, a, there's a few things about this film that really stuck in my mind. Um, there was the opening scene with the medias and, and the backstory. Then, of course, you've got this jaded scientist who left nasa because he built this thing that we'll talk about in a minute which was supposed to defend the earth but they used it in the cold war to make a political statement by as he refers to it as pointing it in the wrong direction or at the wrong target um but all the way through this film i don't know if you've noticed when you saw this film this film to me um every time they have a meeting in this movie um, someone cracks open a bottle of whiskey. That is Every true. time. <laughs> yeah, every freaking time. Sean Connery <laughs> walks into a room and they're all sitting there drinking whiskey and looking at it. Yeah, there's a bit of Fry and Laurie sketch of the whiskey drinking guys, which makes fun of these boardroom discussions 
and they just are guzzling whiskey the whole time. And that I absolutely thought of those guys when I was watching this. It's yep. pretty funny. I, I did. I mean, at least there's one. I mean, Carl Malden at one point he's just like, have a you, you like have a whiskey. You like have a drink. You're like you know, he's about to deliver some some pretty big news. So at least that one is sort of motivated. Like you're gonna want to drink for this. But yeah, the other times it's like it's, maybe the hey, boardrooms is seventy eight. They just the they really yeah. did have whiskey everywhere, and that's what these you know powerful men and <laughs> did. It's, I believe it. You yeah. certainly see it in more than just meteor. So yeah, it was pretty great. Um, I'll yeah, say before um, we get too far into it, I hate to start out with my favorite part of meteor, but I gotta make sure it gets in here before we move on. Uh, totally not plot related, but they based when they coax connery's character back when they convince him that the disaster you know the imminent disaster is serious enough that they need him and that you know that which they do a pretty good job of they break it all down and your hotel is here and the, this is that and we've already got the car and we've got the blah 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 and it's this whole laundry list of like it's not even like plot related stuff it's all like travel log just crap and he says, well, good. Why don't you stick a broom in my ass and I'll clean the carpet on the way out. It's li literally one of my favorite lines in all of movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And his delivery oh. of it, because it's cheesy, obviously, but his delivery of it is like, boom. And yep. uh, what does Malden say? Because he, he holds his own. He says, well, you haven't changed, have you? And he goes, No. <laughs> no uh, <laughs> that's it i mean that's i don't know if that's good writing or what it's but it's iconic stuff that i enjoyed while it was happening do you re did you make a note of the timeline of this movie and when the media is supposed to hit the earth mm -mm. really you didn't notice it no I mean, I mean not my last time through but i had a lot of these to watch so it's it's supposed to hit the earth on december the 7th Oh, really? Lovely. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, that would have been, you know, a day that would... Uh, would have I lived in infamy, say, right? Yeah. Would have lived in, uh, yeah, posterity, I think is the quote. Nice. Um, December anyway, 7th. Um, they should have had I the little know. Japanese wall calendar like they had in Pearl Harbor to tell us when it was that date was actually I, I do love the, the scene in this film I absolutely love. It's when the Russian scientist comes over. Yeah, mm -hmm. all that stuff is the best stuff in the movie. Like legit, got the two, they got the two, the two translators. translators. Yeah, yes. Oh, it is my my absolute favorite part of yeah, this. Is that yeah. what he said? Yes, sir. Anyways, it's it's, yep. it's protocol, and he goes, "I'll take the pretty one." And then the Russian scientist says, he says something in Russian to her, and she says he'd like to say something, some phrase in English he learns on his last trip to America from a taxi driver, and he looks up and he goes, "Fuck the Dodgers." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in tv and i was reading here in tv versions um they just cover it with a whole bunch of coughing and i like i i like the idea of like he wants to say a phrase that he learned his last time here <laughs> just, it's a great scene though and actually that when these are the people involved i mean they're all good carl malden is Laying it on really thick, and he—it's his job. Yeah. He's got tons of exposition to do and stuff, but he's not even vaguely fun. And I suppose that's not why you bring him onto a project like this. But or Henry Fonda as the president who pulls a little 
kind of awesome on TV manipulation. Like that's fun, but it doesn't last very long. The best stuff is definitely Brian Keith, who plays the Russian scientist. Connery plays the uh, NASA scientist. NASA we'll call scientist, him because clearly yeah. he's Scottish. Um, working together with Natalie Wood, who's the Russian translator, and they get rid of the American like military translator and Martin Landau. They basically kick them out of the room. Yeah. And it, but it's a neat moment. It, it, he Connery says, "Well, can we do we not have all the double translators?" Because <laughs> the whole thing is just absurd oh. and nonsensical, and and they're like, "Well, we have to." You know, Landau's general character was Landau is off the hook fun. He's really entertaining yeah. in this movie. Um, He's so committed to just being the wet blanket on yeah, everything. On everything, just, and, and, yeah. and 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 wrong about everything. And you just mm -hmm. before he even talks, you know, he's going to be wrong. Whatever he says is going to be the opposite of what happens. Um, but it could totally committed, right? That makes it fun in a way that Ronnie Cox didn't quite manage. In Great Lady yeah. Down, Martin Landau sticks to the landing in Meteor. Meteor's yeah, a cheesier cool. movie, though, so it figures. That that Very would be correct. welcome here, but I love that. Well, I'm just going to trust their translator, or I'm going to yeah. walk out of here. This is stupid. And of course, Carl Malden gives the all right nods, and Lando puts his tail between his legs and heads out of the room. And mm -hmm. Natalie Wood and Brian Keith and Sean Connery's interactions are from a much much better movie than Meteor turns out to be. Um, there's space effects in it, pretty decent set design, but the space effects are really bad. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, they're not terrible compared to some movies I've seen, but for 1979, they're, they're 12 years, 15 years antiquated. And what we'd had by 79 and what was coming later in the year, just a couple months later, Black Hole and Star Trek, the motion picture, and we'd had Close Encounters and we'd had Star Wars oh. and you just couldn't, you just had to do better than these sort of space 1999 like mm -hmm. you know two-dimensional things moving around you, you, you couldn't pull that off the meteor doesn't even look very good um the destruction scenes are random there's an avalanche caused by some mini meteors yeah. that happens in this film Honestly, that no. is literally the exact same sequence stolen from the film avalanche and cropped to fit the same aspect ratio they didn't just steal this and that. They literally took the whole footage from the reporter starts talking to when they cut away and they just stole the entire sequence and stuck it in Meteor from Avalanche. Which, as I say, brings the Avalanche. I get it. But I had no idea. I've watched both of these movies a couple times through the years and I had no idea that that was stolen. And when you take that out, doesn't really deliver the goods. There is a crazy practical escape sequence at the end with this mud in the subway systems, which <laughs> yeah, really is photo real because it is real and it is kind of amazing. But a, get, escaping through a tunnel with mud all with a mudslide all over you, while novel and unlike anything I've ever seen in a movie, and really great isn't what you show up to a movie called Meteor for. You guys can disagree yeah. with me on that. But it just doesn't deliver the catastrophic thing that it has to, very much like Krakatoa East of Java in that way. I mean, there was a lot of Cold War politics in this movie, and I think there was a lot of subtle digs that you don't get when you first see this movie. And it, it dawned on me this time watching it, you know, mm -hmm. the American missile platform is called Hercules because it sounds like robust and could kick ass, mm -hmm. you know. And the Russians is called Peter the Great. 
Mm-hmm. It's just let's think of a stupid, stupid name that really isn't a compliment, and let's call a Russian <laughs> platform Peter the Great. But there's a neat thing in it that the only way to stop the meteor, at least stop enough of it that doesn't destroy the whole planet because it's five miles yeah, the, long or whatever, yeah, is to take the these two missile platforms aimed at our countries and cooperate on the science yeah. enough to around, spin them around yeah. and shoot at the meteor. And that's really the plot of the thing is more that than these little disasters that happen to Eskimos and conveniently anonymous people that we've not met until we see them killed. Oh, yeah, you know. we and we and no one really cares that they're killed until they're white people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there is that. I was coming yeah. that way. Yeah, it was. I, I that was. I was like, they're like, oh, this happened in Siberia, and the the indigenous tribes, uh, several died. And they're like, okay, <laughs> next. Yep. Oh, but then some 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 pretty skiers get uh get some yeah. And then, you know, Hong Kong gets wiped off the face of the earth. Yep. And New York gets. Uh, I will say the the New York uh, the, the the meteor hitting New York. Uh, spoilers. Um, but the the World Trade Towers, uh, absolutely getting lit up and like like they were made of matchsticks. Um, I was just like. I was not expecting to get a little uh, get a little affected by that. That was I'm like, I'm so, I was like, what? Uh, wow. Okay. Um, if if it course, were a better yeah. done effect, it would be horrifying to witness. It would be it's, horrifying. It's yeah. corny enough that you, even though it's still, you know, anytime you see those things, and especially when you see them. You know, because they get wrecked in a whole bunch of things, and it, it's just yeah. like it, it does sort of, it does sort of, it is spooky and weird. I, I admit. Yeah, um, yeah. I did like, I did like, uh, you know, they said, well, the, uh, you know, a bigger chunk is coming, and it's target or and it's gonna hit on the eastern seaboard, but of course, eastern seaboard means this tiny little speck of an island <laughs> <laughs> called Manhattan. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's like. Could, couldn't be uh, and like uh, yeah, hard not to take that meteor personally if you're a New Yorker. Yeah. That is absolutely correct. Yeah. Yep. It's gonna hit Delaware. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Actually, when you when you mentioned the, when that scene about fuck the Dodgers when they cough it out in a TV edit, how do they end the film? Because at the end of the film, they give the Russian scientists a baseball bat signed by the Dodgers. Yeah, that's right. Dodgers. Yeah. So how do they work yeah. that into the? Probably I'm it sure. becomes a non sequitur. It's yeah, probably as probably simple as like, that. There's no payoff. Oh, look at that! They they went and got a bat. Isn't, isn't that fun? Nice, <laughs> good job. Yeah, that that silly hopeful ending at the end of a global destruction movie also is tonally off. Yeah, they Ronald. Uh, it is Ronald Neem that directed Meteor, right? It's got the same guy who directed Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, Ronald Neem. Great old English director, directed all kinds of fantastic films. We talked about uh, back in our last Double Features episode, um, one of them that he did. And he just, he's fantastic, but he's kind of at the end of his, end of the line here. And happy to be getting paid, all these people, happy to show up and get paid for a silly movie. But the resources to pull off Meteor are not up on the screen. Not even as well as they are in these subsequent movies, which are just as bad, but at least have something going on for them in the real disaster. You know, you got to steal. Mm-hmm. If you got to steal stock footage from Roger Corman, 
to make your movie work. Yep. You just it it you didn't you didn't do a very good job. That's kind of the final word on that. Connery, you know, what can you do? He did a bunch of crap during this era. Some of it's great. It's certainly the movie benefits from his presence. There's no doubt about that, yeah. but it can't be the other movie he did that year was Cuba, which I don't think is very good either, but is at least a lot classier and, you know, better than this. So, yep. of course, he, he he bounced back. He he did. He did. Uh, he ended up. Uh, he ended it's hard up to pick out. a where is Connery most in the wilderness film between the Bonds <laughs> and Untouchables. But this yeah. is in the running for kind of what are you doing, man? Uh, you had to be in mm -hmm. Meteor. I think Medicine Man might be. No, that was after. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was three or four years after. 1992, yeah, five years after. Really? Oh my God. That so, was uh, I mean, Name Above the Title, I'm a Big Star Again. That was the movie he did with the makers of after uh, One for Red October. Oh, uh, my God. Go. I, I thought it was earlier than that. Anyway. Yeah, you like how go. much I know about Medicine Man? Hey, real quick, folks. Lorraine Bracco replaced Andy McDowell at the last second in Medicine Man. It would have been better with Andy McDowell, even though Lorraine Bracco does a pretty good job. Andy McDowell can't act. Yes, true. But as a fish out of water in the jungle with an old-ass scientist, she's less of a city, streetwise smartass than Bracco is, and it would have made for a more pleasant movie. And if you don't, if you want to understand how much Dana DelVal does not like Andy McDowell, just... Next time you're in her presence, say to her, what did you think about the ending of Four Weddings and a Funeral? And yeah. <laughs> We're going to have her on the show. She's committed before the end of the year, so we will remember to ask her that for sure. Thank you. Thanks uh, for the tip. Thanks for the love, inside uh, info. Brian Keith was a last-minute replacement. Uh, Who'd he replace? For, for, He's he, awesome he, in it. It was supposed to be Donald Pleasance. Oh, oh, that would have been neat, too, but I like Brian yeah. Keith better. Brian Keith speaks fluent Russian. Right. <laughs> and that's and authentic like, in the film. It yeah. works fantastic. And Natalie Wood, again, not in yeah, obviously her best project, but she's lovely in it as the Russian she's, scientist. I, yeah, I loved her. Again, she also, and, uh, you know, her parents were Russian immigrants, so that she uh, speaks fluent it, Russian. It, it really is nice. authentic. I, that That's, I, as I say, I stand by it. That's the best yeah. stuff in the film. It's the stuff with those yeah. three, and it's, it's antiquated. I'll take the pretty one, and he, Connery's flirting with her the whole time and all that. I get that. Yeah. But it it's charming, and you like all of them, and it, it, it they're getting along is sort of the thing that you can cling on to the film and say, well, this film's mm -hmm. trying. It's, it's, it, you know, yeah. it's, no, I'll give you that. Yeah. It's trying. It's trying to, to say something. And what it's right. trying to say is cool. So uh, 19, uh, so this, uh, the year before uh, Meteor mm -hmm. came out, because Meteor was And these are three Irwin Allen movies in a row, baby. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, yep, next up we the have... The Godfather uh, of Disaster. The mm -hmm, producer and, of Towering Inferno and... Uh, Journey to the Underwater or something, some movie, and Lost in Space and Poseidon Adventure. Mm -hmm. And and they went, hmm, do we have Henry Fonda available? Yes, yes, we do. Yes. So we have Henry Fonda, Fred McMurray, Slim Pickens, Patty Duke, Lee Grant, Jose Ferrer, Olivia de Havilland, Richard Chamberlain, Richard Widmark, Catherine Ross, and Michael Caine. Michael Caine. That's excellent. Michael Caine. I've never uh, seen a film. Oh, here it's terrible. <laughs> um, no Michael Caine impression, in, not very great. But in 1978, 
The Swarm. A huge swarm of deadly African bees spreads terror over American cities by killing thousands of people. The Swarm. Who wants to start talking about The Swarm? I There is some interesting stuff about this film. Uh, the way it starts, for, for example, um, you get these heavily armed guards running down into a nuclear missile silo, mm-hmm. which all the doors are open. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they're going around um, it, and they run into Michael Caine just comes out of the bathroom or something. <laughs> It does have that feeling to it. It has the feeling of discovering John Travolta in part Pulp Fiction. Truly. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, and it's it absolutely really... puts the opening of Cassandra Crossing to shame. This sequence yeah. goes on and on and on. Flamethrowers and machine guns and they're going around and then he's just there standing there in a, you know, like a 70s leisure suit eating something. And then... He says, well, I'm, I'm Dr. So-and-so. So they pick up a phone, and they prove on the phone who he is. And so now they don't have to charge. incinerate him with the flamethrowers, at least. And, and he gets put in charge of this, much to Richard What's-His-Face's disgust. He gets put in charge of the situation straight away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's it's an odd film. There's some interesting There's some interesting mistakes in this film. So, you know, at the start of the film, they're finding out everyone in this nuclear missile silo is dead. Um, and they find a kid in a car and they pull him out of the car and the bees are on the car. Don't move off the windshield. That's nice so of the door, Pull the car off and these bees are just... And they are mutant Africa killer bees that can kill you with four steam. Well, they, they were... This is grisly, actually. They were, it's just his and his mom and dad were going on a picnic... And he yeah. makes it to the car. They do not. That family is obliterated. And this kid's B-plot, first of all, is to heal up, to get lots of attention and sympathetic attention from our principals. And then he finds his buddies in a couple of BMX bikes and goes on an African bee-killing revenge mission. Yeah. <laughs> and he fires them up, and they attack a tank. And it's so, but instead of killing all the bees, which their plan is fairly clever, but was never going to accomplish this, he just pisses them off, and they go on their rampage after that, basically. So this kid is at the heart of B Central in the film, I have to say. Yeah, so this kid, this kid causes the attack of a local town, which yep. kills a couple of hundred people. Including a bunch of his schoolmates at school. Yeah. A lot of kids die before they get into the safety of the school. Um, there's a really harrowing scene where the woman's at the window watching these dead bodies of these kids. This film's merciless. As far as bee killing movies go, I mean, it's this is bad as they get. It, 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 <laughs> it nobody is, you know, spared, basically. Yeah. So and they're is- killed. And I actually, this is a, I hate the swarm, but this is a, t- a compliment I'll give it. And I'll let you get back to your breakdown, Maz. But they're killed largely in slow motion, and that makes it more horrible. It really does. The bees swarming around, and the people just ugh, freaking yeah. out. In slow motion, like it, it makes it cornier, I suppose. And if you're going to think that sort of thing is funny, but I got, I found myself getting a little wrapped up, and I don't like seeing school children like die in slow motion, <laughs> like with bees around. I'm like, it was, it's awful, actually. And in that way, I'm sort of impressed. I mean, it's a, it's a film as well that has little bits of you know where it's from it attached into it. So after the, the bees attack a train, 
they used the computer, not mother, no, but a computer mm-hmm. to work out what it's going to attack next. And they try and use a repellent on these bees, and they're completely immune to it. So um, the general <laughs> suggests, going back to why is everyone in the in the media drinking? He suggests spraying them with bourbon to get them drunk. Who's the general in this that's always arguing? Oh, Richard, Whitmark. Richard Widmark. Oh, my God. The most humorless actor in the history of all the movies. Good choice. I got to say, I'm not a Widmark fan, but that's a good choice. And then, of course, uh, you know, Henry Fonda playing the very, 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 very well-known and prestigious scientist decides to inject himself with the potential cure and it kills him. Yeah, that scene is, there's a critic who actually, his whole review is railing against them basically casting Henry Fonda in their movie, which he's, this is now the third of these he's been in, and and robbing him somehow of his dignity. And it, I, I, I sort of get what that reviewer is saying. I think Fonda does a good job at it. He, he's game for it. You know, he gets it. There's a similar scene in Brainstorm where um, Louise Fletcher dies, and it's it's brilliant. And that's what they're going for here, but it's all done in one shot. And they just, the film, Erwin Allen's not a subtle filmmaker, and you just can't pull off Henry Fonda dying in a chair, and it sucks. It, he looks stupid, and it makes the whole thing kind of awful, or maybe I'm the only one who thought that. But I mean, this film is kind of interesting. It's Here's some interesting things I got about this film. So Michael Caine is convincing the general that you can't use herbicides. They want to kill and destroy. Right. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're willing to scorch the earth to kill the bees. Yeah. So for about the middle third of the, sort of the the middle part of the film, Michael Caine is at leather home, loggerheads with this general saying, you can't destroy all plant life. It's insane. Think of the pollution. Think of the cause of the environment. And he keeps mentioning the environment, which is like nod to the environment because the and, uh, and every time he gives a speech like that, he gets louder and louder and crescendos and gets really angry and then says something really wise at the end. It happens like four times in the movie. But go ahead. Yeah. So you know you, you can tell that this film was made a, a couple of years after the Environmental Protection Agency was set up. So yeah. I, I think it was a nod to that. But so that's kind of cool. But then the film takes a dive because these bees attacked a nuclear power station and it blows up killing like 40,000 people and there's no explanation of how these bees just managed to get a nuclear power station to go yeah. critical. Right. And uh, yeah. 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 It's so dumb. then they then decide well, and, they have the, and, 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 and there's the billions of dollars have been spent to make these nuclear plants safe fail yeah. safe the odds against anything going wrong are astronomical it's, I it's really that, stupid and it's really well, the, let me ask you the train sequence the train <laughs> sequence while also sort of terrible also doesn't really work very well and there's this there's these weird sort of scenes where the people someone gets stung once and survives but hallucinates and um, and they what see, they hallucinate is giant people-sized bees. bees. Yeah, and then you see the bee <laughs> looking at them. There's a few shots with compound eyes of the bees looking yeah. around. Bee so, vision, it's got it all. Bee, yep, bee vision, yep. Yeah. So then they decide to set fire to Houston, Texas, with flamethrowers. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't work. No, that really so then, that really goes badly. One, and then suddenly, when all hope is lost. One of Michael Caine's sidekicks works out that um, why 
bees actually came to the nuclear power station and why bees came to the nuclear missile silo is that the alarm system hidden in it is the reproductive reproductive frequency wavelength of the bees. bees mating call. That's right. It's the alarms. I remember that. Which is how they lure it them to their deaths. Yeah. So they float these loud speakers out on the Gulf of Mexico and then they literally <laughs> pour enough gasoline and diesel onto the Gulf of Mexico to incinerate it. And they kill all the bees by incinerating the Gulf of Mexico, which weirdly Michael Caine seems okay with. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, why not? Why not? Why would you not be okay with it? It's just the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, um, there's some great lines of, you know, will history blame me or the bees? That's true. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, because Michael Caine says something like, oh, I hope to God this works. And then the general says, can we count on a scientist who prays? <laughs> and then Michael Caine <laughs> looks at Crane's line. He says something like, I wouldn't count on one who doesn't. <laughs> that, the movie is like that way it's too so much. Great. There's nothing fun about this movie except how bad it is. That To me, that's the kind of final verdict on it. There's the moment where, where Kane's character finally gets taken off and they start letting the military do what they want. And Widmark, and this is classic Widmark, so I should like it because it's fun not to like, right? But he gives the whole, well, you might not believe this, doctor, but I really hoped that your plan worked. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so, Kane is so preachy and silly. And like the kid who causes the deaths of all these people has this little, I did it. I killed all the people. I'm pissed off the bees or whatever. And Michael Kane's like, now, if I were you, I would have pissed off the bees too. That's exactly what I would have done. He like can't get along with a single other person in the whole film. <laughs> and he's like misogyning this kid's ego who really is truly responsible for all the mayhem. And the movie's just so wrong-headed and stupid. It's got some decent-ish photography by the crew, but Irwin Allen doesn't... He's not John Gillerman. He does not know where to point the camera. So a lot of what they have set up here is sort of wasted. Like, when people are walking up and down stairs, it looks super cool. But when bees are attacking, it's like kind of pedestrian and stupid. And, and it's just stupid. It is so good it's bad but even for me it, it two hours and 20 minutes or something it just it absolutely wears out its welcome and i i hate the swarm this next movie is objectively worse than the swarm and um, you got more on the swarm hurry up we got two movies left the end of the swarm right michael yes. kane someone, uh, someone says to michael kane come who it was i had to write this down do we beat them, or is this just a temporary victory? And the last line of this film is Michael Skaying <laughs> saying, don't know. But we did gain time. We could win if we use that time wise. And then the film just freaking it. Yeah. Yep. It, does, it has a super unacceptably not big ending for a film yep. that has a giant chain wreck and a nuclear like power plant exploding. It, it's just... None of that. Oh, the train's not bad, but the train's just, this whole scene's so stupid. You spend all this time getting basically every minor character on the train, and then you basically crash it. And, spoiler alert, I guess, for the swarm, but it just, there's no emotional payoff to that. It feels silly. It feels like they're 
pushing all the wrong buttons. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but Irwin Allen's is just not a great filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And somebody else with that same material and that kind of budget would have done better. I can't believe Kane, his next movie, Maz. Oh, no. He... He comes back and does the next Irwin Allen movie the very next year. Joel? Yep. Well, I do. before we move on, I know we got to move on, but it is important if we're going to talk about The Swarm, yeah. it's important to note that the African killer bee portrayed in this film bears absolutely no relationship to the <laughs> industrious, hardworking American honeybee to which we are indebted for pollinating vital crops that feed our nation. I, um, best, best. I never thought it would be the bees. They've yes. always been our friends. They've always been our friends. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, Michael Kane. Michael Kane returns the very next year. Oh my god! Uh, in Irwin Allen's Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. So the Swarm didn't exactly didn't actually it was nominated for an Oscar, which is stunning, um, and was. Uh, but didn't do very well, was certainly diminishing returns for Irwin's glory days. So he goes back to the well with, with a Poseidon Adventure sequel. Here's my biggest flaw. Well, let him read the synopsis before yeah. we get off. All right, real quick. I, 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 believe me, I want to know what the biggest flaw is with it because he, there's so many to choose from. There's, there's a few of them. Yeah, there. Okay, but. Go ahead and tell what's yeah, so, what is I the mean, ridiculous th premise of this stupid movie. In this one, uh, it, it's an extension of the previous film, wherein a cachet of adventurers return to the overturned ship to seek several fortunes. Oh, that's so. The, that's a nice sort of leaves it mysterious kind of mm -hmm. synopsis. Whoever wrote that, I appreciate that. Maz, the let's start with the biggest problem. Why not? So the start of the film is a three-minute recap of the the worst throwaway scenes of the poseidon actually sinking yep um so this ship sank in the middle of nowhere because it took them it was a helicopter that came and rescued them in the first place that's right nothing around yes so they were in the middle of the ocean in fact right at the start of the film during a, during a storm obviously yeah, they're, they're, they're miles from the coast mm -hmm. like they're at sea yes so michael kane so along comes <laughs> Michael Caine comes along with his three, his two-person crew and himself, one of whom is an exotic dancer who knows nothing about being on the ocean. She's trying to work, make the galley work. Played by Sally Field, of all yes. people. So they survive the tail end of this storm, which caused this rogue wave. Which the other is Carl Malden, ship. we should say, again, yeah. slumming in these movies. So here's the build-up to the dumbest part of this movie. They're in a tugboat. They are. Called the is it called the Jenny? The Jenny, a tugboat deep out at sea where tugboats <laughs> don't go. And the opening sequence, this is the first thing you see in the movie, is the tugboat center with the with the actors in the thing. So this is on a soundstage. The camera's doing this, rocking back and forth, and there are literally four guys out of frame throwing buckets of water at the Jenny. Yeah while this first scene goes on it is it's like how you would do it in 1944 and it doesn't even really look as good as that it looks completely artificial and it's you're like how this is bad like this first scene is terrible and it's sally field she's a klutz 
through the whole movie. Sally's adorable. What are you going to say? But she, you know, she, it's it's a ridiculous role. Malden, again, refuses to go down with the ship. He keeps his dignity intact. Kane, you just can't believe he's doing this again. I just watched this movie going, how can you be doing this again? This is terrible. At least in this movie, he's not playing a pretentious scientist. He's a he's a rogue salvage guy out in the middle of the Atlantic in a tugboat somehow who they find this thing sinking and they realize, hey, we can salvage this. We're going to do this. But... Somebody else has the same idea. It's a medical, and this I guess this is a thing. It's a medical yacht, a private medical yacht, whose chief medical technician is wearing a giant white bad guy double-breasted suit, played by Telly Savalas. A Bond villain. He's a he's an absolute Bond villain without question. I mean, he was the Bond villain, and he's basically playing the parody of a Bond villain here. Uh, unlike The Swarm, and I might like this movie better than The Swarm, even though it's nowhere near as good as The Swarm in terms of its technical value. It this movie is so crappy, it's hilarious. It it's sacrilege, I think, if you're a Poseidon Adventure fan. But literally, every line is wrongheaded. Every effect is terrible. Every character is cheesy and corny and just stupid in every way you can imagine. This, this, uh, Telly Savalas, I'm just here to save as many people as possible. And, and he's like, well, you you can save all the people you want, but anything else we find in there is for me. And they're like, all right, then bring your, your armed medical team. <laughs> We're all dressed the same. Yeah, got- I mean, I don't know how to explain how stupid this is. It's a giant private yacht that has like a little red cross flag flying on it. And he's dressed like a Greek gangster. And there's, it's so ridiculous, but it's hilarious at the same time. I enjoy it. And we basically do a reverse Poseidon adventure where they find their way into the boat and go all the way back to where we saw our heroes from the previous movie come from. And it's just... Well, here's the thing. Here's, here's a couple of things. The, the director loves to have drinking scenes in this movie. I think they were drunk when they decided. Has anyone thrown away the set of Poseidon Adventure? Brilliant. Let's use it. Let's use it, yeah. They're <laughs> so drinking the whole they time. Find- Slim Pickens spends the whole money, whole movie cradling a, a really expensive bottle of wine. Yeah. Through all and these action drunk. sequences and stuff. There's a I sequence... Mean, there's a sequence where they're in this room and it's literally, there's a hole in the floor and you spend about nine minutes just jumping over the hole, everybody. It's just so <laughs> lacks everything that's awesome about the first film, but in kind of a funny way, I have to say. And it has Penny from Lost in Space in it and I have such a huge crush on her and she's so adorable in this. She spends the whole movie in an evening gown. Peter Boyle plays her dad. And she's got all these aw shucks dad moments, and she's in love with Mark Harmon in one of his yeah, first who's films. Like twenty in this movie or something. And this movie has Carl Malden and who's the other main actor in it? He's kind of the only guy we haven't said. Joel, are you looking at this one? Uh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about Jack Warden. Jack Peter Warden. Boyle. It has Carl yeah, Malden Jim and Jack Warden, who I always thought played mm-hmm. the same guy in all those same movies. But maybe I'm the only one who thought that. So they get well, to the purse's yeah. office, they get their loot. And then they find out that Telly Savalas is not a medical doctor. He what? Master... <laughs> I can't 
speed. Yes, I know. You're shocked, Joe. He's, they're after what's actually in the hole, which is if, which is probably why the ship was unstable because you know they ne- they never took on enough ballast in the original movie. So implausible as it seems, they go into a capsized ship to find plutonium. <laughs> To kill the bees with, right? I mean, that must have yeah. something to do with that. Uh, it's it's oh bad, my. but it is really, really objectively bad from the word go until the end. And I I do like it better. I I like I like these actors. It, it, this is an impossible movie to make good. There's a bit, because they hired a director for the next one, even though it's Irwin Allen, there's a bit of an uptick in quality in every way imaginable with our next film, which we kind of have to talk about whether we're done with this yep. one or not, because we're just well, out of time. One, this one, like, they find a plutonium, they have a fight in the hold, everyone grabs hold of everyone else's M16 yep. machine gun, and all of a sudden, all the people can now use uh, an assault weapon. Correct. And they're changing magazines and they're shooting. <laughs> yeah, the that's right. Yep. They have a firefight to the end. Big shootout. Like, big shootout yeah, on big the hull of the ship. It's a terrible yeah. scene. People swimming in the sea. As if getting to a tugboat when all the bad guys have automatic weapons somehow is being safe. They should and have been Sally swimming Field, to the yacht. Yeah, Sally Field saves the only diamond left. And then uh, her and Michael Caine make out in the filming. There you go. Um... I was, I, I mean, I, I mean, I was sitting there, and uh, uh, you know, I, and I was while I was thinking about what you guys were saying, uh, I, it occurred to me, and I was starting to have withdrawal because it's been a while since Ernest Borgnine's been in one of these films. Mm. Um, and so uh, I'm happy to report, though, that we get um, James Franciscus and Ernest Borgnine back in the and uh, red the, buttons, red buttons is red back, buttons. and it, and he's a just a he's unrecognizable version of himself in this film but borgnine and buttons man bring it mm-hmm. on i say uh and that's then, how uh, even yeah. though it's 1980 that's how you know it's a 70s disaster film yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and uh and our and our and our main trio of stars william holden jacqueline Bissett, and paul newman when time ran out Paul Newman in his career, and I've said this on the show before, refused to say this movie's name. He's, he, he said it's the only movie he ever did. It's not that he's ashamed of his work in other movies or he didn't think he was great in this or that. He was a very self-deprecating guy when he would talk about his work. But this was the only movie he was ashamed that he agreed to do because he knew <laughs> it was bad. He knew from the word go that it was bad. And he always referred to it as if you refer to it at all as that a volcano movie. Yeah. I and yeah. And the neat thing about this, he admits he did it for the money. Shouldn't have done it. He's ashamed of it. But literally the paycheck from this film all went into a fund to start up Newman's own brand of food products. We have, we literally have when time ran out to thank for that. And it was worth it. Right, that stuff's no, really, like really good. Like everything I've ever eaten with Newman's own on is kind of awesome. And I do like his pasta sauce. I'll tell you that. Then. It's a good pasta. You got good salsa. So yeah. some good came out of this. You know what I mean? Um, 
Barbara Carrera's in it. Man, Barbara Carrera in this movie. And I don't normally, I try not to drool over women and stuff in the these films. You know, Penny, okay, I like really liked Penny and I wanted to marry her and take care of her. So that doesn't count as me drooling over somebody. Barbara Carrera's just like, well, she's got one of those like Hawaiian, like Japanese sort of silk kimono things that's part of the uniform of these women. And she... Barbara Carrera, who always plays a vixen in everything but when time ran out. And time ran out, she just plays this really sweet, nice lady who the only thing wrong with her is she doesn't want to marry Edward Albert. And, of course, because it's an Irwin Allen movie, she has to pay the ultimate price for that decision. <laughs> really too bad. Um, there's a volcano on an island with a giant resort, and William Holden's name is on the, the hotel... And they're drilling for oil on another part of the album. Paul Newman's in charge of that, don't you know? And they're studying the volcano. And James Franciscus has this weird dual role as the guy. He's the he's the guy that couldn't get Richard Chamberlain to play in this film. If that helps you at all. Um, he really is. He's, usually he's the stand-in for Heston. But in this film, he's a villain. So he's a stand-in for Chamberlain. Um, he... He studies the volcano, and he's got a monetary stake in the hotel, and his motivations is just all over the place. He's there to do everything William Holden doesn't want to do or everything Paul Newman doesn't want to do and just argue with him about everything or plead with them or try and bribe them. Franciscus is a scenery-chewing, denialist, money-motivated villain from the get-go, and he's... You know, you, some of you may never have even heard of James Franciscus before tonight. I'm glad that I could share him with you because I think he's kind of amazing in a kind of maybe a terrible way, but I really do think he's kind of amazing. He's got to act with Paul Newman in scenes and he's got to, he, he does a really, really good job of it. Veronica Hamill comes over from beyond the Poseidon adventure. Ernest Borgnine is playing a cop, a retired cop. Red Buttons is playing a retired hood and they got a feud going, and Borgnine has taken his vacation where Buttons has taken his, and it's just there to harass him. And, of course, by the time the thing's over, they become friends. You know, this film also, <laughs> it almost feels it's like... It's got Alex Karras in it, too. We just, you know, yep. we don't if forget. there's a director's cut with about 40 minutes of extra footage... Yeah, it actually helps the thing. It helps it make it feel better. Somehow, I bet you one of these characters somehow has a secret underground lab where he's trying to clone dinosaurs because it's got all the mixture of a freaking Jurassic Park movie in there without the freaking dinosaurs. It's bonkers. It's it's a bonkers film it, from that standpoint, and it has a, some pretty amazing things. There's a town where all the oil workers hang out and go drinking and stuff and hang out at this saloon. It really is a shamefully standard Old West town set that they've slightly modernized and destroyed by flooding. Because I don't know how you get a tsunami to come... Uh, they kind of explain it, but how do you get a tsunami to come back on the island where the volcano erupted? That seems like that would be the opposite of what would happen. Maybe they're across the bay or something. I don't know. The flooding scenes are amazing, but again, it's a volcano movie. That can't be the most memorable sequence that you deliver. There's a we need to cross the ravine sequence that goes on for on and on and on and on over the old rickety adventure. Don't cross this bridge. Bridge where several characters you really didn't think were going to die totally bite it in dramatic fashion. <laughs> um, 
Burgess Meredith and I can't remember the woman's name, but they play former trapeze artists. I wonder if that's going to come in handy later. <laughs> um, there's two plucky young kids. Uh, Newman's doing his best. He's got a, even a few good lines in it. It's certainly he's certainly more at home in this thing. I hate to say it because I love Paul Newman than Michael Caine was in the previous two movies. Michael Caine's, I mean, I don't know. He's great. He should be good in bad things, but he kind of doesn't. He kind of doesn't get there. He's particularly terrible in the swarm. That might be the worst I've ever seen him act in anything. He's, as Joel says, he's committed to it, but it's so bad that that doesn't help. And the fact that Widmark is as committed, if not more committed, just it's just abrasive and exhausting. Where this movie's got its moments. I mean, I love red buttons with the in disguise with the shades and the mustache and. I can't remember what he says when he realizes he's being watched, but he's like, he's got a tennis pro like helping him. And he's like, no, I'm not going to red buttons, all grumbly and grumpy is fun. Right. (laughs) Yeah. James Franciscus uh, exploding at the end is delightful. I mean, he deserves to explode. Uh, But again, that scene and that spoiler alert, but the hotel explodes. It just like they said, you gotta go over the hill to the thing, and then maybe somebody will come pick us up. You can't stay here. This is the worst thing. It's not the lava that will get you. The oxygen will be sucked out of the air, and, and then a big thing will come down and it'll kill you. And they basically say what's gonna happen, and of course that is what happens. There's a great scene where Veronica Hamill's character, who refused to go with Wilden Holden, her father, stays with Franciscus because they're married. And she's in her hotel room just denying anything is happening. And she looks at herself in the mirror, and right as the meteor thing from the volcano hits the hotel, the mirror cracks. <laughs> and she screams. And then we see the hotel from up on the mountain, and this cheap animated red thing goes and that's it so the flooding scene of all these oil guys that we don't know it goes on for minutes and is incredibly destructive and kind of amazing like right at the beginning of the movie but the the hotel blowing up at the end is just a mirror cracking and like a little somebody pouring ketchup on the film basically it it it's completely unacceptable way for a disaster movie to end. I'm sorry, and I mean if that that's what you're waiting to see, the people stayed behind. They're all gonna die, and all you see is the mirror crack and the and the hotel go boop, and that's it. That's all you get. And and then I don't remember the last lines of when time ran out, but Maz, I don't know. Can you pull this one out of the gutter? Is it? I I like this movie because it's more fun. It's better. It's got the exact same sort of storylines as Poseidon Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, but it, it's not crapping all over a different movie, which helps. And it's it just is kind of more fun, even though it's equally grisly. It's uh, I didn't like it. I mean, I I did see this one. I didn't like it. I I I kept thinking of other movies yeah. that were, and obviously these movies came actually after this one. But they yeah. were more memorable. To be, but yeah, but right, but they were better, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's I don't know. Paul Newman helps, man. He helps, especially in the early goings when they're trying to figure it out. The research station at the volcano with this, they've got this elevator that drops you down on a crane that has like a glass floor in it where they observe and stuff. There's a whole sequence where Franciscus and he get trapped in that thing and they gotta get out and stuff. And the miniatures, some of that work is good, but 
the big ending is terrible, and it that really sucks the air right out of this. Because even as a bad B movie disaster movie, you just you didn't you didn't even come close to nailing the ending. You didn't even really try, and that's you know, it was, that's sort of weak. It was too reminiscent of the bad parts of Krakatoa. Yeah. And and, and some of the good parts, but it, it doesn't have Krakatoa's heart. It feels like a cheap money grab, you know. And it really is. It's kind of it, it's fun. Maximilian Shell is handles this stuff well. Newman handles it well. William Holden though, he's fantastic in Towering Inferno. Here he's this is stuff he's saying and doing just doesn't make a lot of sense, and the drama is just fake and stuff, and uh, it's just a bummer. Well, maybe he was hungover. He was probably drinking a lot. What the point. forty minutes? I mm -hmm. forgot about the lab, man. That part that's bonkers. But the forty minutes that I like is it's twenty minutes of it. It's just at the beginning where it's just these people. It's just the stupid soap opera without any effects. But getting to know some of these people and their situations, this big ensemble of folks, helps. It helps the film. You know, it helps yeah. the film. They cut twenty minutes out of Wolfgang Peterson's Poseidon remake, and that would have helped that movie. That movie still wouldn't have been great, but it needs time for you to get used to these people and audiences if you deliver in the end will give you that typically so i don't that's weird that they i mean they know how these movies work you know what i mean yeah. you, you know so i don't know so that's kind of on a sour note when time ran out i wrote literally on the on the mm -hmm. thing because there wasn't another disaster movie until like 1993 94 i mean it this wiped yeah. them off the map. We we claim that the day after is sort of a disaster movie, but that's so much more than a disaster movie, right? You know, so it, it we put it in that category because that's the category it goes in. But it, it just you know, it was more of a public service uh, drama, yeah. right? Um, and it had Gutenberg in it, so that's cool. Yeah, it did. To some, um, we don't have any time left. We went way over, but anybody got any in summation, Maz? What's good no, or bad but, about these leftovers? I mean, good or bad about the leftovers? Um, it probably helped pay tax bills for a lot of the stars in the movie. They don't they say this because this wasn't the trend, but uh, yeah, hundreds of people were employed by this or whatever. Yeah. Sure. Uh, you know, we may have given Mark Harmon his big break. Yeah, Mark Harmon. Yeah. I don't know if you call it his big break. It took him, it took him another ten years to really start starring in things. But but sure enough, it gave him it. it Michael O'Keefe and Christopher Reeve and Mark Harmon, you really do see them as very, mm -hmm. very young men. That's fun. Newman's own salad dressings and salsas yeah. and uh, spaghetti sauce. That's the bomb. You know, Michael Caine, the story I heard about Michael Caine from what, reviewing these movies does make sense because he was famously once quoted as saying how they, someone asked him how he picked a movie. And he said, um, he said, I, I read the first page of the script and the last page of the script. And if my character's name is on both of them, I make the movie. <laughs> well, and this is where, this is the, he was still getting great work, but this is the Michael Caine, you know, he's not a young leading man anymore. And yet he's only yeah. taking leading man roles. He's not aging gracefully. Michael Caine uh -huh. found his way back to the light by taking supporting roles in much, much better movies and and as a character actor he's awesome as a leading yeah. man during this weird era jaws the revenge i mean it's, it's like a 10-year period the island 
just one crap movie after another, where in the heart of it, somehow, in Hannah and it, her sisters, he won his Oscar. Yeah. But blame it on Rio. I mean, that's, I guess that's not as bad, but it's just kind of one bad old guy starring in a crappy movie after another for a decade plus. You know, I think, weirdly, you know, you think most people, more people have heard about Poseidon Adventure, well, but beyond the Poseidon Adventure and the Swarm. Yeah. I mean, one of, in my humble opinion, one of the best movies he ever made after he was famous. Mm -hmm. you know, this is after you know, the original Italian job and Alfie and sure. all the spy movies he was and in. Was, Zulu. Um, yeah, even after that, the man who would be king, him and Sean Connery. Yeah, when they were at their lowest. Yeah, that film's brilliant. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Maz yeah. is coming back to talk about the man who would be king because that is oh. brilliant, and they did it. They did it right here next to these. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'll be a fun one to talk about. We'll talk. Maybe we'll work some other John Houston in there too. There you go. Um, all right, everybody. Uh, thanks so, so much for joining us. Mass, uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this discussion well, of leftover again, 70s disasters. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was this was fantastic fun. Yeah. yeah. Sorry we talked for two hours and 25 minutes. Hey, uh, the, the listeners of this show uh, know that um, they, they knew what they, they were in for. Yeah, they don't tune in for uh, terse conversations. They are very familiar with our loquaciousness. Yeah. Um, so we appreciate you. Reach out to us at The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan page on Facebook, at Ask Joel and Ryan on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and The Movie Show. Uh, you can email us at AskJoelandRyan at gmail.com. All right, everybody. Um, Next week, it's just me and Joel, and I got 30-plus mm -hmm. horror movies to get through for Halloween. Oh, yep. good luck. It is, uh, is going to be a good time. Lots of creepy <laughs> kids, everybody. It's going to be fun. Woo. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, bye now. Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.